0: This is Blackstone Joe, and you're listening to Slick Talk. If I say I'm an oil man, you would agree. It's a stink of oil. Welcome to episode 109, Maintaining the Stone. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into to episode 108. That was a historic one. It was the first time I've had to step away from the mic. Illness-related reasons. Uh, pro tip, do not get the flu. Um, but I want to thank my producer, Josh, for stepping in and taking care of our listeners on episode 108. It feels great to be back on 109, especially because I have a very special guest, Eric You'll learn in this episode that Eric is a jack of all trades. He's been at Blackstone for 15 years and counting, and we talk about everything he does on a daily basis here at Blackstone, which can be just about anything. When called upon, Eric is capable of unpacking a sample, getting it set up for the lab, running the actual lab tests. He even has some report writing experience in the bag, too. So safe to say, if there's something that needs to be done at Blackstone, Eric has done it. And he's also going about the business of maintaining our processes and improving upon them, whether that be in the form of constructing a new lab, which we are in the process of doing right now, or making sure that the data is reliable because, of course, the machines we use, they need maintenance too. So Eric is going about the business of keeping everything running in tip-top shape So you can look forward to learning even more about Blackstone, even some of the tests we run that are unique in terms of the methods we use, the equipment we're using. Some of it is, in fact, one of a kind. So Eric is here to break all that down with us. And we have a special segment where we break down some data from his file, interesting results that need more context. So stay tuned for that. But now, let's meet Eric. So I appreciate you stepping out of uh, whatever it was you were doing today. This was short notice when we pulled you in. Yeah. For this episode, but I kind of like prefer to fly by the seat of my pants a little bit with this, especially with guests, because that way you don't have any time to sort of plan or script out your you know your thoughts. Like it just it has to be immediate, which I think is more it's more interesting for me. It's more interesting for listeners to kind of just get right into it. And have as, you know, lively or as live a presentation and not sound like you're reading a script. You know what I mean?
1: Right. I mean, for example, this morning I was, when I got your message, I was uh, just finished up unloading a bunch of lumber, uh-huh. which is one of the things. What's that for? So recently one of our coworkers, Eric, got a, a promotion to helping me and Luke do many other tasks that he hasn't done before. Mm -hmm. And so in part of the life of a sample, one of those is the receiving room, you know, gets mailed in. So we need more unpacking trays and we need more sample testing trays and Mm -hmm. we
0: need more, just more. Do you feel like we're getting caught up?
1: Yeah. Actually, if you, if we look in the garage, you're going to see a lot more empty carts than—well, uh, they're about equal right now of empty carts and full carts. So we're definitely catching up. So it's been—we're getting ahead of it, and that suggests, suggests we're at the uh, slow season, but yeah, I imagine we're going to keep getting back up. So having Eric to be able to build some more stuff is going to help out with, uh,
0: with that. Fifteen years ago when you started, was the staff size smaller in that, like— we still had to maintain a certain level of focus to get everything done the day of, or was it slow enough because of fewer samples that you could kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say take it easy, but was it like as, as hard-pressed to get the day's work done back then? So
1: 15, 15 years ago, there were 15 people. That was all of Blackstone.
0: Mm-hmm. Lab operators, writers, everything. That was everything,
1: the kit and caboodle. We had myself, gentleman named Jerry, gentleman named uh, – it'll come back to me.
0: Was Jerry another writer Who was
1: Jerry he? was actually the lab operator. He was the lead lab operator. Oh, okay. Jerry would work in the main building, which is the 416 building, and he would run that lab when it was still a lab. That was the only lab. A busy day back then was six runs, mm-hmm. six sets of 36. Yep. And – hard pressed it wasn't it wasn't like busy enough that you were worried you wouldn't get it done but you definitely weren't slacking off so mm-hmm. and that was the full six and that was pretty consistent and then we would end up having just you know as the years went by we'd have to get more people because the trajectory continued to rise so the norm became 7 the norm became 8
0: yeah Eight runs, seven runs. Yeah. But we
1: always seem to stay comfortable, and we grew slowly. Now we're sitting at, I want to say, just over 30 people, maybe 35, uh-huh. a mixture of all the different people. And a typical day is 12 regular and five aircraft. So we're sitting, and that includes what we consider a hot run, mm-hmm. which is the important stuff that you want to get done same day.
0: A lot of pre-buy samples, stuff like that.
1: And we would, so back to that question that f- it would be five normal runs and the hot runs, so I guess I should say that, so, mm-hmm. and he had he always, Jerry always had to have it done by a certain time because you had to write all those pre uh-huh. all the really hot ones and so yeah, it was to to think back of what it was like back then and where we are now is like night and day, because it was much more relaxed, you know, I was, I was actually doing lab work, I was a lab tech doing mm-hmm. The same stuff that the lab operators do now.
0: Sample setups, yep. running the tests.
1: Yep. I would do viscosities. I would run flash points, run the spectrometers, set up samples. Yeah, and then mm. I also sometimes was setting up runs. So I would do, I would receive the mail from the cust, you know, customers coming in. Yep. And I would sit there and set up the runs. So I would look at each of the tickets and and. and I even dabbled in logging in the information, so I would take the info info slips and Mm -hmm. log them into the computer.
0: I've still seen you do that every now and again. I'll pop over and you'll have the headset on and everything. So, Yeah. I mean, I've been
1: told I am good at talking to customers. Yeah. And so I I do it when necessary.
0: But when you started, um, were you a report writer coming in? Or did you kind of always have a sort of nebulous status? So... The or
1: the origin of me coming into Blackstone, I was studying to be an MET at Purdue, what is now Purdue Fort Wayne, but yeah. used to be IPFW back then. And I was walking home from class, and there was a little job fair marquee in one of the flower beds. Kristen and Ryan were there? At Yes, they were at the job fair. I didn't have a job. I think I got laid off at that point. And I was like, okay, why not? went home, put a shirt and tie on, grabbed some resumes, and went mm-hmm. to this job fair. And yes, Blackstone had a booth. Walked up and they said, can you do this? Can you do this? Do you think you can do this? I'm like, yeah. And I kind of talked to him, and then handed my resume, got a call back. And then, yeah, my initial adv- adventures in here were half my day was spent writing reports, analyzing. So I went to analysis school and learned yep. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The other half is all the things I do now, which is a jack of all trades, if you will, you know, plumbing, electrical, building, fabrication. Uh-huh. Um, it got to a point where I learned that maybe my skills weren't as uh, well suited for the report writing. So I was mm. taken away from that, but that gave me full time to excel at what I do now and yeah. have been doing. And that's probably been the last, so if I've been here going on 15 years, that was probably the last 13 years. So I spent a good two years trying, mm-hmm. you know, try my hand at analyzing reports.
0: And so you've been around for the construction of at least one lab, right? And then we're adding another.
1: Let's see. I have been through the construction of every lab. Because I built the aircraft lab that we have. Uh I built the lab that is our main lab for the bulk of the samples we test. And I'm currently building our third lab, which will be the expanded version of the aircraft lab.
0: So, what goes into building a lab? How do you start?
1: So, the main, as, as you know, you have all the tests that we do spectral analysis, viscosity, flashpoint, and solubles tests. So, the way I, would, I approach it is I break it up into those parts. I say, okay, which is the most um, time-consuming and takes up the most space. In this case, it's the flash point. Right. So I started in this case with this lab. Is I said, okay, I need I need a hood because I got to exhaust all the mm-hmm. the smoke from cooking the oil. So I get that set up. I get that hashed out, and I create kind of a uh, drawings and I make sure I have a setup to where I know that's going to work. Then I look at the rest of the room and I say, okay, what other permanent features do I know I'm going to have? I need the spectrometer because that's the next most important setup. So I'll say, okay, I'm going to designate this area for that, and I kind of check that off the list of knowing that's going to be all kind of where it goes. I look at the infrastructure and say, do I have power? Do I have argon gas because that's the fuel we use? Right. And do I have drainage and venting? That way the exhaust gases can be taken away. Once that's all kind of hashed out, I'll move on to, I think in this case, I moved on to the insolubles test, checking for solids in the oil. That is a multi-step process. So you have to take your sample in its staging area. You dilute it with ether, petroleum ether. Then you agitate it, in this case we spin it using a a rotary type apparatus. Then we need to spin it in the centrifuge under heated conditions to help separate the solids from the emulsion. And then we have our camera to take pictures to uh, document the results. And so I have that set up on the other side of the room in a nice straight line. That way it's nice and in order of operations.
0: So have you learned, you know, what to do, what not to do? How, how, how have you improved the process from multiple construction, you know, projects, one lab to another? Is there ways you've gotten better at it, things you've, you know, done differently at all, even though the tests remain the same? Actually,
1: yes. The tests do remain the same, but we have made as a group and myself, great strides in the way we do things and how we've jumped forward in the overall efficiency of how we do each of the tests. Because by definition, as we get busier and busier, we have to be able to go faster but still maintain quality information. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you I was describing the order of operations on the insolubles test. In the original lab that I built, which is now the aircraft lab, all those operations are crisscrossed across the room at different angles. That room is small, so it's not as inefficient. In the main building, we have a similar area, but it's a little bit wider, so you're walking a little bit further. In this new lab, I decided that the most efficient way is a straight line, so that improves upon it. We've also learned that we used to have the centrifuge up at about chest height, well, not quite chest height, about waist height. Yeah. We found that it's actually much easier to handle if it's much lower. So we now lowered it down on its own little table at about kneecap height. It's easier on the arms. It's more efficient. So we've we've ventured into ergonomics. I, I try to look at ergonomics a lot because we do a lot of repetitive motions. And so if we can uh, minimize those, everybody feels better at the end of their day, especially when we're testing yeah. the amount of samples we test.
0: And one question I get every now and again from customers is, how do we go about maintaining the quality in the tests? Like quality control, how do we ensure the tests we're running are still producing valid results so like what kind of maintenance goes into say the spectrometer making sure that the spec data is reliable or you know the viscometer what are we doing if anything over time to make sure that the results we're pulling from these tests are valid
1: so for
0: the spectrometer
1: it has a list of maintenance protocols that you have to follow so changing certain uh there's cooling there's a water with special uh, fluid in it to help to chill down certain components. So that gets changed Mm -hmm. regularly. That way, collecting data at an optimal level. Uh, We run standards periodically throughout every run at certain intervals. And that way, those are known as checks. That way, you can trust that your sample is the levels you say it is. So the iron is exactly what it is. There's no doubt. Mm -hmm. And if if a check standard fails, then that is addressed before it continues on. And then the sample in question is rerun. That way you can say, okay, this last check failed. We need to back up, check it again, which is why we ask for the amount of oil we do. That gives us that uh, ability to retest and double check our work to make sure everything is valid. As far as the viscosity bath goes, those tubes are checked periodically with a uh, controlled oil that we know to be having exact viscosity. So Mm. a standard, they make Uh viscosity standards. So you'd run that through the tube a set number of times. And then if you get the results you want, you know that that tube is correct. If the tubes are out of calibration, I actually sent off a dozen tubes just recently to, a pl- to another company, and they will calibrate the tubes for me, certify that they are correct, and then send them back to me. And then I'll be able to test them, and then I can trust that they are correct. So we have certifications in place to make sure everything's good.
0: So do you think that your experience doing kind of every step of the operation, do you think that's informed your ability to train other people who are, you know, stepping in, whether they're a writer or a lab operator, or if there's someone coming in to help you with maintenance, do you think like your overall understanding of like every aspect of the operation has really given you a leg up on, you know, helping new people step in and get the hang of the operation?
1: Yeah, it's actually really a huge thing. Throughout all these years, the easiest way for me to figure out how to fix something is I generally go do the job for a day. And then I'm usually able to figure out what's wrong. If somebody's, you know, it's kind of a running joke. If you want Eric to fix it, go make him do it, and then he'll get anno- he'll get annoyed about whatever it is that's wrong with it and mm-hmm. fix it because it's obvious. If it's easy, to you know, if it's a, a a simple fix, you know, something you change the way the desk is oriented, you change the order of the operations you do, you change your setup. So. It's It varies on a lot of things, but I do, yeah, very much it's really awesome to be able to know everything because then I can step in and go, well, I did this this way, but I see how you're doing it this way. What if we combine the two and do it this
0: way? What are some projects, if any, over the years that like posed a particular type of challenge and you were kind of just presented with a problem to solve and it was up to you to figure out what to do to maybe improve a process or correct you know, some sort of procedure that, you know, wasn't working effectively? Because I have to imagine things are just presented to you as Eric, figure it out. And you do. But are there any over the years where you kind of were met with a particular challenge that was memorable and you kind of just had to work your way around it?
1: Well, I have, there's, there's a few of those. Um, the most recent one is I'm redesigning the viscosity bath. So we use a viscosity bath. Well, when I first started, the traditional viscosity bath had a cylindrical shape. It was a cylindrical glass jar uh-huh. with six viscometers, and then it sat in a bath of 212-degree oil using heating elements and a propeller to stir it up to mm. keep it consistent. A few years back, we decided to switch to an aquarium version. We had custom aquariums made by a company using plate borosilicate plate glass, and oh, they wow. actually fused them in an oven. Uh-huh. And so they're one of a kind. They don't exist. And we had them done to our specifications, and then we had to figure out how to... So instead of having these tubes in a cylindrical orientation where you had to move your head back and forth to the left to see them all, they were stretched out into a straight line so you could see them all at once. So that was working great. Then we moved up to 12 because why not? Mm -hmm. That's twice the amount of work at the same time, and you can watch them all. Yeah. So in the existing viscometer bass, we have an issue where we get what's known as kind of a fog. When the unit is shut off... The heating elements continue to stay very warm, and they will cook the oil, which is uh, white oil, uh-huh. and they will fog up, and it'll it'll then condense on one the uh, safety. We have a safety aquarium that the main viscometer bath sits in. That's for just safety to make sure, if heaven forbid it breaks, you can get away from it before any of that hot oil touches you. Uh-huh. Well, we found that the white oil will condense in that aquarium and cause a little obstruction of view. So one of the things I've solved, at least I hope I've solved is I created a gasket and the new setup for it that allows it to um, self, so it's all sealed up. So even though if it fogs, it just condenses right back into its own area. So mm-hmm. far, so good. It's been going good for the last couple of days, but I'm going to give it a few more days to make sure I've solved the issue. Um, the control, mm-hmm. we, I, we uh, I created a set of uh, light-up buttons. So when the tests are running, the button will be lit up, and then when you press the button again, it shuts off. So it's more of you can at a glance tell which tests you have running because we running 12 at a time, you yeah. get, get chaotic. And, I mean, so that's a, uh, one of the tests we do. Now, one that I'm still actually working through and has been a big challenge is getting the mail in, the receiving itself. Mm-hmm. That whole operation from start to finish is quite, you know, you have the mail unpacked, packed. Then it's, the ticket is uh, marked and then wrapped around its bottle and then put in a place. And then the next young lady or young man will check it in. And then it goes to the setup and we set it up into the runs and then the ticket leaves the bottle. So having those those two together is very important through that first few processes. Cause if they get separated, it's incredibly hard to put them back together. Right. But also the amount of mail we get now on our busy times is I'm trying to find a way to make sure all that stays very fluid, but also we have enough racks and trays to actually Mm -hmm. do the work. Because everybody, you know, you have people willing, but if they don't have a place to put it, it slows down the, we'll call it the machine, if you will.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's always going to be a bottleneck somewhere if you let it.
1: Right. And ideally, and it's always been my thought that the bottleneck would be always living somewhere around the writing portion or the lab analysis portion, where the lab is pushing more data that can be written, which is nice because that can sometimes carry over depending on, you know, but then we get more writers, which makes it even better. So obviously in an ideal world, you'd have the perfect amount. The lab puts out just as much as the writers can write. Uh But as you pointed out, there's always a bottleneck, but having the bottleneck in the receiving area means the mail backs up. And as you know, the mail never stops.
0: Never. Yeah. And on the report writing side, it's, you know, the data can be coming at you at a consistent clip. But writing about it, the pace can just vary greatly. If it's special tests, or if we're, you know, connecting the dots and trends, and things are complicated and trying to find the solution, that's not, you know, I think if you were to average how much time it takes to write a report, maybe a few minutes, if everything is right in front of you, there's no reruns that need to happen, there's no uh, issue with the client information, the results are plain, and there's no mystery going on, but then you'll come across a report where it will be 20 minutes, just depending on what the results are, you know?
1: Right. Especially, um, I found in my writing days, there'd be customers that would love to have a chat cause they have certain, certain extra information. they also kind of want to pick your brain. And yeah, we know that they like to talk about their, their favorite engines and vehicles and stuff because, you know, it's their, their baby. So, mm-hmm. and so that can add a little bit of time, but you know, that also brings in that personal touch. You know, we're not just handing you a a bunch of information saying, here you go, enjoy it.
0: Yeah. So I want to break down some data specifically from your file. Um, But before we get to that, going back in the past one more time, when you started here, did you have any predisposed, like, notions about vehicle maintenance, oil, oil changes? Like, when you were walking into Blackstone, what was your idea of how to take care of an engine or a transmission what were the thoughts or, or, or beliefs you had coming in with respect to engines and oil and all of that?
1: Well, I do. I I've always done my own oil changes, and I my son now drives it, but I had a I have a 2007 Chevy Trailblazer, and I always change the transfer case oil on that, which is a whole operation. So, I was I've always been mechanically apt, and so I've always done all my different maintenance brake jobs, teaching my sons how to do it too, and so I would say coming in, one, I didn't know. Coming in, oil analysis existed. I didn't even know that it was a thing.
0: Mm. Common theme for for us. Right.
1: Walking into that booth that day, I just knew I needed a job. Little did I know it would become like the favorite place to be because, I mean, I love coming Mm. to work. And so as far as maintenance goes, the one thing that I found to be interesting was how long you can go on the oil. Yeah. Yeah. So the conception I always had was 3,000, 5,000 miles tops. And that's what it was. And you just went by manufacturers. But now if you have information on it, you can tell that, oh, well you can actually go longer depending on your situation and your driving habits. So that was a big eye opener. The other one was the idea that oil is technically oil.
0: A lot of overlap.
1: Right. Mm. If you have your favorite oil, I think that's great. I have my favorite ones just because they seem to work well. Like in the case of that Trailblazer I spoke about, if I put full synthetic in at 210,000 miles plus, it does not burn or lose as much oil as if I put conventional in. I can't really tell you why. Uh-huh. I could probably figure it out at some point, but I just know it works, so I stick with it. Yeah. As far as... Uh, so I, yeah, I have. A, I, I think I had a really good understanding of, of uh, maintaining a vehicle, I think um, the the analysis of it, though, was actually kind of eye-opening because I could see the different trends. Like, I knew I'd taken a trip and hauled a very heavy trailer. Yeah. It was cool to see that actually show up and say, well, there's your spike because you put, you know, extra strain on the whole system.
0: Yeah, a little change in wear, maybe maybe a lower TBN at the end of the run, things like that. Exactly, yeah, Mm yeah.
1: That was also an interesting thing. I had no idea that there were, you know, additives in the oil that did all the things they did, so— Learning about the total base number and what that meant, I found that to be really interesting because then it kind of made more sense as far as how well the oil was performing and then how much life it had left. So I thought that was really cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, with all the additives on the shelf, I think it's fair for a lot of people to assume there's nothing in the oil because of all the the random aftermarket products that people want to put in. In addition, a lot of the time they assume that there must not be anything special you know, in the oil as far as the additives that are already in it.
1: Right. And when I was actually looking more closely at the oil than I do nowadays, seeing all the variations on the uh, levels they use, you know, one company might use higher levels of calcium. Another company really enjoys their magnesium. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And then also the ones where they would put a little bit of sodium in, I found that to be interesting because then, you you know, at the time you— would Say, oh, well, that's in this case because that's you know, why we ask you about what oil you use because in this case, the sodium is thereby already, so it's not something that was came yeah. from
0: anywhere else. And that's if there's anything that's Blackstone related that's informed my choices, it's avoiding oils that use sodium just so I never have to wonder, you know, it's always very controlled where that might be coming from, you know, whether it's coolant or additive.
1: And I, I do agree because I think I imagine at some point I consciously made that decision as well to say oh well i know x y and z use this they're great oils but i'm gonna avoid them just because i don't want to have to think about you know an issue that could Mm -hmm. that isn't there
0: so now without further ado we have a segment called explain that sample where i pull interesting data from your file that needs a little bit more context and you tell me the bigger story so here's a sample and the listeners will be able to find this on social media I'll tell you the the engine and vehicle if, if you might not be able to remember, because that is a rather dated report. We're going all the way back to 2009. But I thought the results were interesting because you did follow up on this vehicle, and things changed. But in this sample, you can see a lot of metal, especially in comparison to the sample previous. So do you remember anything context-wise surrounding this sample? Well,
1: given it's 10,000 miles... I suspect this is from my Chevy Trailblazer.
0: Is that that correct? It's the Dodge 3.9 V6. That's my Dakota? Unit ID Mr. Black.
1: Yeah, that's my Dodge Dakota. Yeah. Oh, what was this then?
0: So back at that point, 10,000 mile interval, so quite a big jump. And obviously you can see the increased wear to go along with it. But do you have any idea? Can you remember back to where things went from there? Did you get rid of the vehicle? Well, we we aged
1: out of the vehicle. Um, having children causes you to kind of need to get a bigger vehicle. It was a, it was a cab and a half, so it really didn't have the space for more than just one of our children at the time. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, this takes me back to when my uh, my oldest was oh right around. Still in a car seat, because I remember putting him in the middle behind us. I would say, if memory serves, back then, while I mentioned earlier about my uh, knowledge of maintenance, back in oh9 this was when I had just started, I ended up finding that uh, you know money was a little uh, tighter back then. So I didn't get to do the maintenances as m- often as I should. Looking at this, it suggests I needed a new air filter, among other things.
0: Definitely. We have a spike in silicon there.
1: And... I'm guessing that ten thousand mile interval was probably at the time me neglecting to change it because I if memory serves, I don't think I like to do an oil change that long in that particular vehicle. The trailblazer is why I guess the trailblazer is because that one actually, its oil life monitor, usually kicks off at around ten thousand. Nowadays it's closer to eight because she's, you know, two hundred and ten thousand plus, it's getting older. But that used to be the interval at all times, which was always nice. I find,
0: I find it to be a really, um, you know, the longer interval. I find that to be a really common theme with like a lot of Blackstone employees. Is you you have whatever thoughts you have maintenance wise coming in, and then you learn what, what you're mentioning earlier about oils usually being able to stay in use longer than, of course, the 3,000 mile rule that we have all heard, and then even longer than what the manual says. So we all get like ambitious. I feel with that second sample, where we're just like, absolutely, we're just gonna we're gonna test the limits. You know, but I had to know, maybe, do you think in addition to the longer run, was use more demanding in general back then? Like, like what all were you doing with it that might have influenced spikes, especially in that bearing wear, which is pretty nasty?
1: Uh, I would say I was definitely hauling heavier loads. I mean, that was, you know, a Dakota was a, on the smaller side, and I was probably pushing it with what I could carry. Uh. I would say around – so this being – well, around May. Yeah, this is about almost right when I hired in. So I think I was doing a bunch of odd jobs just to try and make sure the money kept coming in. Yeah. And I think I was uh, definitely putting some some heavier use on that truck.
0: Yeah. It's funny because you can never – like with a truck, obviously, that kind of goes hand in hand with harder use. But you can never assume things I've learned. So like for example, Reagan had a sample from her Prius – and after she'd moved out to California and her husband had actually been using it on his construction job and putting as absurd amounts of stuff that he could like in the trunk in the back seat, and like bags and bags of concrete and whatever. And it looked terrible and then improved afterwards, but he had to use the car for it for a period of time. So it's just kind of funny how, of course, with a truck, you can assume that, but people will do pretty much anything they need, you know with 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 the vehicle they have,
1: yeah, I mean, that truck worked great for us for all those years. I think this was we had had it quite a bit uh, before then. and yeah, I think this uh, this longer oil interval was probably definitely to me probably a good contributor because if memory serves that truck going forward didn't like very long oil intervals. it just mm-hmm. didn't. and i've I've found that that's kind of can be the case where a certain engine type or a certain drive style or just a certain person's vehicle, that's your number, you know. Maybe your number is three thousand, and because yeah. if you go any longer, it just doesn't like it. Uh-huh. The why and the reasoning, you could certainly investigate. But if you know your number and it's not a huge burden to change oil regularly, then I would, you know, it's not kind of nice to stick mm-hmm. with your number.
0: Yeah. Well, without further ado, then I just want to fast forward to what happened after that sample. So we have it pulled up here, and again. These results, people will be able to check them out on the socials. They'll be able to follow along with what we see. But, yeah, you shorten the interval like you were talking about, and everything looks better. That silicon washed out, so evidently there wasn't an ongoing air filtration issue. You never had any issues with coolant, nothing along those lines. And then, yeah, it seems like it was more or less like smooth sailing from then on. So it does look like one of those instances where maybe it's just you were right about the interval just asking too much. And then the sample stopped in 2011 here, but everything left off in, in pretty good shape. So um, I forgot if you mentioned this earlier, did you end up getting rid of it shortly after 2011 or?
1: Yeah, 2011 was about when we uh, we, I think we ended up trading it in and I think we actually moved to the Trailblazer because that was uh, a good vehicle for the winners in Indiana, and yeah. then also it had the the cabin room to allow for more children. It yeah, it was a great vehicle. I could, looking at my past reports, I think it had uh, definitely. I was a little uh, had air filter deals. I wonder if I I'm trying to remember back, it might have been that the the filter didn't like to seat real well, and I interesting. think interesting. Okay. So I mean, if if the filter wasn't seated almost perfect, it would have like uh, almost a gap to where it could. Unfiltered air would get right into the air box Mm -hmm. underneath. And I feel like, thinking back, that was one of the issues. And it kind of shows, given it kept spiking up and down. Right. Even though the intervals don't suggest I really would have needed to change the filter that often. I mean, the mileages there weren't crazy high.
0: And if it weren't for the samples, I mean, that would be a pretty tough issue to know that you have, right? Like the filter not quite seating properly. Because, I mean, I figure you install it, you're going down the road however long. Unless you have an oil report to tell you that you have a spike in silicon, you might not assume anything's wrong, right? Or-
1: oh, very much so. I mean, that's one of those maintenance things that, you know, us talking about how your preconceptions of what maintenance is required. The air filter has been like one of my big ones, and I, it probably stemmed from that Dakota in that I wanted to make sure it was one of the things I took more care with because it's surprising how much that can add to wear in your vehicle, you know, when it accumulates. So, you know, in my, in all the vehicles I had so far, I'm very conscious of, okay, are you seated properly? And then every so often when I do an oil change, I'll pop the air box open, take a look at it and see what it looks like, you know? And then if it's not a big deal and I, I'm not strapped for cash, I'll go ahead and change it out if it looks mm. even a little, you know, cause it's, it's what you would call a cheap insurance. I mean, changing yeah. the, it's, if it's easy, you know, most of them nowadays in most Engine bays, it's a couple clips, and you move a big old housing, and then you pull it out, put one in, and it's it's not terribly hard. So yeah, it's one of those things that I've kind of taken to be a very helpful thing to do, and I kind of agree with you. It's probably stems from back when this would do when it would have this type of up and down, Uh and trying to figure out how to solve that, and then that allows you to start to see well, if I change X, Y, and Z, if I'm not so hard on the gas, Mm -hmm. if I don't if I don't uh, you know. In certain cases, you know, towing, you really can't get around that, but maybe I try not to tow as much if I'm trying to preserve it. Yeah. Or maybe I don't carry as much weight because it turns out it can't handle it. Or if I do carry so much weight, maybe I change the oil more often. That way it's not so hard on the engine. Mm-hmm. So being able to take all the information that we give and apply it to your daily life is really cool. If memory serves, I think I, I finally figured it out, but then as, as we talked about, I short, you know thereafter I ended up selling it.
0: Hmm. And of course, that's another benefit of oil analysis is knowing when to get rid of the thing. <laughs> so
1: well, I can say definitely this one didn't have, and you know, it was it was good, and probably whoever mm-hmm. got it after me, it lived on for quite a few more years.
0: Yeah. Well, absolutely. Well, we'll let you get back to maintaining the stone, which uh, which is which is the, the daily life of of. Uh, what would you say your position is technically? So I my, feel like it's got to be something that eventually, over the years, they just kind of decide you're Eric, you know? Yeah, I mean that's
1: I have you know we we all have our own letter, all our little designation on our letterhead of our notepads, and mine has been lovingly said the guy, so absolutely, yeah. But I would say my official title is uh, builder and lab technician is kind of where mm. I fall in. But as I had mentioned before, I do just about everything within the company if needed. So it's jack of all trades, master of none.
0: Master of a few. Yeah, maybe. I think so. I think so too. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out, Eric. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. I hope you all enjoyed listening to Eric and I. That was a fun talk for me because even though I've been around a while and I've known Eric for a while, he still does so many things around Blackstone that even I was interested to learn more about because as a report writer, I'm mainly looking at the data. So while I'll see Eric around the building here or there, there's always so much going on, so much that he has to do and take care of that it was informational for me as well. I hope you enjoyed learning more about the stone through the lens of Eric. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with episode 110. This is Blackstone Joe, signing off.
1: The Slick Talk podcast is powered by Blackstone Laboratories. If you're ready to start your oil analysis journey, visit blackstone-labs.com to order your free test kit.